Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that um, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable before you, our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. Um, so we're working our way through um, Mark, the book of Mark, and um, Derek has pulled some passages together sort of more by topic than just following it verse by verse by verse. So today we've got a couple of little bits in chapter 1 and another little bit in chapter 3. And the theme of what we're talking about today, if you haven't guessed it already, um, in the early part, really the whole first half of Mark, um, Jesus is king. And he's a king with authority. And in particular, today, we're looking at his authority over evil. Um, So Mark says in chapter 1, verse 21, that they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. So there was something about the way that Jesus taught that was different. I guess it's not surprising because suddenly as someone teaching not in human terms with a narrow train of thought like us, but the actual king that he really is. I mean, today, if the king of the universe came to preach, teach here in church, you might expect him to preach with a bit of authority. And if you're in the synagogue in Capernaum that day, you might wonder, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Where's he come from? And does he really have the authority or does he just say that he has? If you were there that day, you would have had your thoughts answered. Because just then, right on cue, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now that's not something that happens every Sunday here in Durham. Interesting thing, the evil spirit recognised Jesus of Nazareth as the Holy One of God. Evil spirits know that Jesus is the Son of God and they're frightened bit of trivia. Do you know that in the Bible, only humans are stupid enough to deny that Jesus is the Son of God? So um, the evil spirit or demon, same thing, Jesus um, asks Jesus, have you come to destroy us? And it's interesting here that he says us and not me. Right? Um, Demons know that at a particular time appointed by God, they will be judged and they'll be punished. And they know their fate. Matthew 8, 29 tells us that. But Jesus says, be quiet, come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority... Even gives or- he even gives orders to the evil spirits and they obey him. Jesus not only has their fate under his rule and authority, but he can also order them about, set boundaries where they can go and where they can't. 
his authority extends over them. He is ultimately their king. And one day, every knee shall bow under his lordship. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. For some, this will be too late for repentance because their hearts are hard and they will only begrudgingly confess he is Lord. We never have to be afraid of evil or evil spirits. If you are, please don't. We just need to place our trust in Jesus who has authority over them. This is good news for Christians. Psalm 23 verse 4 says that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. A non-Christian, however, has no such peace of mind because they're not in Christ. But the Christian has the promise that all things work together for good. And, the promise, and they also have the promise of Jesus' protection. And that's in 1 John 5, 18. So reading on, uh, jumping down to verse 35. Uh, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he left the house and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. That's an intensely good relationship with the Father, isn't it? Getting up early to pray. I actually don't really know anyone that does this, and I'm sure that people that do, and they're probably so humble they don't tell anyone about it so as not to boast. And look, I, I, I don't mention this to make you feel guilty because our relationship with the Lord this side of eternity is never going to be perfect. I mention it to encourage myself and you to take hold of that relationship we have in Christ. And pray heaps. See, John 8.28 tells us that Jesus did nothing by his own authority. But he speaks as the Father tells him. How does this happen? Through prayer. Many times in the Gospels we see that his prayer was often linked to the preaching of the Gospel. And the casting out of demons. And that's why we should pray when we share the Gospel. Because without the Holy Spirit, no one is saved. And no one is set free from bondage, fear and guilt. Salvation sets us free and the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, helping us to live spirit-filled lives to the glory of God the Father. Simon and his companions went to look for Jesus. He's obviously gone a while as he went out in the dark. Not much power in those days, so I actually doubt they found him before sunrise. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. You know, the obvious thing for Jesus to do would have been to stay with those people where everyone was looking for him. You know, there's an obvious need there. Would have been a good place to build a church. Things are happening, good vibe. Build a little mini kingdom, build an empire. We actually don't know what Jesus prayed when he was alone. But immediately afterwards, he says, 
we need to go somewhere else. I need to preach there too. And my speculation is I think that this direction was a result of his prayer. So in all of this, Mark is giving us a picture that Jesus is revealing his true identity through his ministry. He is king. He is in control, even over evil and evil spirits. And he always uses his authority for the good of those that he rules over. So let's flip over to chapter 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went in to take charge of him for they said, he's out of his mind. Thanks, family. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem and said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. This is a really serious charge. They made the special trip down from Jerusalem to try and sort him out. They acknowledge his undeniable power, but they claim that Jesus is possessed by the demonic. So Jesus uses two illustrations to show that this is false. Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. Uh, Firstly, with the argument of logic, he says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. I mean, if any power on this earth is internally divided, it will implode. And the fact that Jesus is attacking the kingdom of Satan destroys the claim that he's working with him. Jesus definitely does not work with the devil. 1 John 3.8 says that the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Remember earlier in Mark 1, after Jesus' baptism, he was sent by the Spirit of God into the desert to be tempted by Satan. This was the first blow to Satan's regime. We might say, Jesus won, Satan zero. This second illustration that he gives here is about the strong man. He says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. Jesus has come to tie up the strong man and to take back the possessions that don't belong to him. That's us. All those who are chosen by God. He rescues us. Jesus immediately says, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. In fact, Jesus will end up sacrificing his own life so that the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints will be ours through the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' death on the cross with our sin upon his shoulders renders Satan the strong man powerless. 
The main aim of the devil is to make you reject God. But the forgiveness of Christ makes you acceptable to God even though you have rejected him. Satan, the accuser, now has no grounds for his accusation. And so we can receive grace as a gift through faith. Colossians 1.13 says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You know, an amazing deliverance happens when we accept Christ. The Holy Spirit does a work in us to draw us to the Father. He ministers to our spirit and confirms to us we're his children. He sets us free from guilt and shame and he helps us live a godly life. If we get this context, I think we understand the next verse easier. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. So what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Um, Derek actually talked about this on Wednesday night. Anyone listen to that? Yeah. Um, at Bible study. And I can assure you that it is not something that you accidentally say or do. And it's definitely not something that you do when you hit your thumb with a hammer. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit cannot be the same thing as grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit. Because in... Um, Paul in Ephesians 4 when he mentioned that was talking to believers not hard-hearted opponents and it also cannot be that it's someone who rejects Christ openly and, and then they therefore can't be a true Christian later it's not that that would rule out the Apostle Paul himself who persecuted Christians and Jesus remember on the road Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? who are you, Lord? And even Peter, who disowned Jesus three times when he was before Pilate. So it would seem that in this context, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a hardened and constant evaluation of someone who has had the truth revealed to them, but hold that the works of Jesus' spirit is demonic. Logically, if we call evil that which is saving us from evil, we're in a very sorry state indeed. You see, it's by the Spirit of God we become sons of God. And if we think his Spirit is evil, we can never be saved. It's impossible to be saved if you're against the power that saves you. It's really, when you think, it's unthinkable that someone might call the power of God evil. His Holy Spirit who drives out demons, who heals, who convicts us of sin, who transforms lives and leads us all into righteousness, is never evil, but only good. If we were to hold that he is evil, we set ourselves not so much against the forgiveness, uh, not, not so much that forgiveness is not offered, but that repentance can't be sought because of hardness of heart. 
we'll find ourselves in the same position as the demons and Satan himself, who await their sure and appointed judgment day. Christians often worry that they've committed this sin, but such a concern in itself is evidence of an openness to the Holy Spirit and not the slander of him. This passage has been used by um, different groups in Christian circles to say things that I do not believe that is the context of the passage. Uh, it's been used in prosperity theology. It's also been used as a guide in deliverance ministry. Um, with regards to the deliverance, um, I can actually only find two instances of casting out of evil spirits post crucifixion and both of those instances are concerning unbelievers not believers I'm happy to talk at length about that afterwards if you'd like but this morning I do want to say something I do want to say this that when a person truly accepts Christ evil and demons have to leave, leave that person they have to exit as I said before in Colossians because he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he's brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. For the true believer, this is something that has already happened. You know, the scriptures are not something to claim and then believe by faith to make it happen. Right? Scriptures are a statement of truth. Truth about believers and a truth about unbelievers we no longer belong to the devil but we belong to Christ he's rescued us from darkness and adopted us into the light and Jesus said but if I drive out demons by the spirit of God then the kingdom of God has come to you this happens at conversion so let's keep true to the context of the passage before us. We should be careful that the enigma and controversy over the unforgivable sin as well as false word faith and deliverance doctrines doesn't keep us from missing the main reality underneath this passage. Jesus has authority over evil and his Holy Spirit is good. That we are guarded by God's power. How remarkable that God has not left us to ourselves, that his Holy Spirit draws us. He doesn't leave us in the ups and downs of this life, but by his Spirit he sanctifies us. He helps us. He convicts us of sin. He makes us more like Jesus. 1 John 5.18 says, we know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. That's not a something, that's not a you must, that is fact. But he who was born of God, that's Jesus, protects him. So Jesus protects us. And the evil one does not touch him. Fact. Jesus is king. He's our king. There's a popular saying that says you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Sorry, he already is. 
We just need to acknowledge it as truth. This morning, um, we're going to move into a time of communion. Uh, and I just want to read Matthew 26, 26, which says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread and he gave thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. And then he took up the cup and he gave thanks and he offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Lord's Supper is primarily for the remembrance of the perfect person of Jesus and the sacrifice of his perfect life given for us. He commands it for believers. He doesn't say, do it if you want to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this bread and wine that today represent your broken body and your shed blood. And as we remember, we know that we also confess and proclaim your death until you come again. Help us partake of it in a manner that reflects its worth. Help us to examine ourselves. Help us to consider our motives and our attitudes. And most of all, we take this bread and wine to remind ourselves that you died for our sins. Extinguish them, extinguishing them by your death. And we accept this by faith. In your mighty name. Amen. Please, as you, um, as you feel to, just come up and um, partake in the Lord's Supper.